Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. I'm going to pray, and I'm going to pray for some friends of our family, um, Annabelle and Charlie Cable, their son. Uh, was buried this week, um, a teenage friend uh, between our children's ages. And the city of Newton is hurting. And I want to ask you that even as I pray, uh, you would pray with us uh, as I pray for Tommy Cable's family, Annabelle and Charlie, his siblings, Sophia, Juliet, and Jacques. Uh, and then we'll look at this passage together. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you for this day. Even as Aaron was anticipating the light of the afternoon streaming into these windows and knowing, Jesus, that you are the light of the world, we praise you for such a present reminder. Father, we praise you that you have put us here and that you have knit us together. We praise you that you have said that those who belong to you, Jesus, who have been bought by your blood are like living stones built together and that you, Holy Spirit, dwell among us. We praise you that when we come together, you remind us who we are, even as Luke was saying earlier. Even when you remind us of our sin, you are very ready to remind us of your forgiveness. Father, I praise you that scripture after scripture you remind us that we can come into your presence without fear, not because you are not holy, but because your holy demands have been wholly met in Jesus Christ, who has paid the price for our sins once and for all. Father, I pray that you would settle our hearts in your presence and that you would allow us to hear your word preached. Father, we are asking that you would show us more and more clearly the results of the work of Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, you who are seated at the right hand of the Father, who even now are waiting as the Holy Spirit works your redemption into the lives of your people. Father, your people whom you have chosen before the beginning of time. 
Father, I pray that you would settle our hearts from our fears, from our fears of viruses to our fears of death to our fears of the unknown to our fears of failure to our fears of being found out to our fears of eternity. Would you settle our hearts? Father, we know that you have put us into these towns, particularly in Newton and Wellesley and the towns beyond. And Father, I pray that as we experience our schools shut down, we would come alongside our neighbors who are afraid and who are scared. And Father, we pray that the hope of the gospel would drip from our lives into our communities. Father, I lift up to you particularly Annabelle and Charlie. And I ask that you would poignantly meet them in their grief. Father, I pray for Sophie and Juliet and Jacques and that those here who know these children would draw near to them. Father, we want your heart for our communities, and we long to see every tear wiped away. And we pray that you would teach us to mourn as those with hope. We pray that you would elicit the fervency that Apollos has in our own hearts by the power of your Spirit. Father, thank you for your promise to use your word in our lives. I thank you that you've promised that we're not going to be the same women and men as we get up and leave, as we were when we came in, that you're at work. And we're not going to be the same because we have doubled down. It's not because you have allowed me to speak with some extra degree of clarity. It's going to be because you are at work, because you've promised it. So, Father, meet your people right where they are. Father, meet us right where we are so that we might remember that we have been empowered to go out in the community and to love deeply. Lord Jesus, we praise you for what you're about to do. And it's in your name, Jesus, that we pray all these things. Amen. We're going to continue on in this book of Acts. We're in the 18th chapter. And Paul or Luke does an interesting thing for Theophilus. I think in many ways, as he ends this section, and there are five sections in Luke that end with the way it ends in verse 20 of Acts 19. It actually says, and Luke says, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. As we work to that end, I think that Luke pulls the camera back and shows us these three visions of a study, as it were, of the Holy Spirit through the extraordinary case of Apollos, 
the normative case of the Ephesian disciples that I'll read to you in just a minute from 19 verses 1 through 10. And then finally, the necessity of the Holy Spirit's power that is seen through 1911 through 20. Um, I think that that's what he's doing. And I think that we all need to hear this. I think that in each of these cases, um, we see the Holy Spirit work in ways that we need to remember him being at work in our lives. And what's interesting is as we've looked at these last few sections of Acts, we've actually seen why Paul wrote to the Philippians and why he wrote to the Thessalonians and why he wrote to the Corinthians. And today, particularly, we're going to see why he wrote to the Ephesians. And in particular, maybe see why he wrote some of the things that he wrote. This is a study of the work of the Holy Spirit. And I want us to look at this first case with Apollos. I've called it the extraordinary case of Apollos. And what I want you to recognize is that the Holy Spirit's work, the spread of the hope of the gospel, has outpaced the apostles' ministry in the case of Apollos. It's outpaced that ministry that went from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. It's outpaced it. It's interesting to me that we get to read this part in these weeks of the coronaviruses. This virus outpaces any of our abilities to slow it down, and with it comes fear. But what I want to remind you is that when we look at this passage... And we see that the ministry of the Holy Spirit is outpacing even the apostles that instead of bringing fear, it brings hope, the hope of the gospel. So who is Apollos and why is this an extraordinary case? Well, it's an extraordinary case, one, because this guy, Apollos, doesn't know the whole story of Jesus, right? And we see that he doesn't know the whole story of Jesus at the end of chapter, or verse 25 because it says that he spoke about Jesus accurately though he knew only the baptism of John. In other words, Apollos knew the things of Christ. They had been taught to him. We're going to see that in just a minute. But the parts of Jesus that he didn't know were the command that Christ gave his disciples to be baptized and to baptize the disciples in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Nor did he know of Pentecost at this point. It's an extraordinary case of Apollos. So let's look at who Apollos was for just a minute. Verse 24 tells us that Apollos was a native of Alexandria. Alexandria is a city on the top of of, um, Egypt. Alexandria is hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles, over 300 miles away from Jerusalem as quickly as you can get there, and probably even longer by foot. Apollos comes from Alexandria, and he is given a few personal characteristics that we should notice about him. One, he's an eloquent man. One commentator said that in the vernacular that might be a cultured individual. He he knew his culture. He was well-read. He could talk about the the latest music. He understood how to communicate with his peers. He was recognized as one who was eloquent and cultured. Not only that, but it says of him that he was competent, that he was particularly capable 
in the scriptures, that he knew the Hebrew scriptures. He understood them. He had spent time in them. He had imbibed them. And he was particularly capable in teaching and speaking of them. We are told that he had been instructed in the way of Jesus. Now, it's most likely that this instruction was oral instruction. Someone had come from Jerusalem and had not waited to understand that Jesus would command his disciples to baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And this individual most likely didn't wait until Pentecost before they went back to Alexandria. And whomever this person was who talked to Apollos shared the ways of Christ. The story of who Jesus was. And Apollos understood them in light of the Old Testament scriptures. And that's what Apollos spoke about and what he talked about. Even though, as it says in this extraordinary case, that he only knew the baptism of John. Now the great thing is, is the next story, which also has to do with the work of the Holy Spirit, talks about the baptism of John. We'll hold on that for just a minute. But what's interesting is that we're told something about Apollos' ministry, about who he was in light of his ministry. There are, is a section in 24 that talks about who he was as a person. Then it says that he was instructed by someone in the way of the Lord. And then it goes back and it says that Apollos was fervent in spirit. This is a really interesting phrase. As you look it up and study it, you begin to understand that what it describes is one who, who boils from the inside up, not with heat, but with passion, who is excited. The image that I had in my head because of my, my home brewery that is called the Bee's Knees that exists between somewhere in the back of my house and the back of my neighbor's house is the idea of what you do when you finally prime beer to carbonate it. You put in a little bit of sugar, and then you mix it together, and then you put it in bottles, and then you cap it in the sugar that is, that is, that is um, metabolized by, by the, um, ah, excuse me, it's not the bacteria, it just left me, I'll get it in just a minute. Yeast, thank you very much, I appreciate that help. By the yeast becomes carbon dioxide and alcohol. And this carbon dioxide is what happens when you pop open a bottle of anything that's carbonated, and it bubbles up. That's the picture that is given of what this guy's life is like. It is bubbling with the Spirit. Now, it is an option to say that it is just his effervescent, his effervescent personality, but it's more probable that it is actually the presence of the Holy Spirit already at work in his life. When you read in Romans the way that Paul describes the life of a believer, of a Christian, he says in verse 9 of chapter 12, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, but fervent in spirit. The life of the Christian. And here we see that description of Apollos' life. Luke goes on to mention that he spoke and taught about the things of the Lord accurately and with boldness. 
Now, it's impossible to read the book of Acts without knowing that those are the actual, the very things that the apostle prayed that the Holy Spirit would be given so that they might be bold in their proclamation of the gospel. And I really believe that what Luke is demonstrating here through Apollos' life is though he did not experience the baptism in the Trinitarian form of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit as Jesus commanded, the Holy Spirit is already at work in his life. So what do you do about this concept of the Holy Spirit at work? One of the books that I've been dipping back into this week reminded me that the Holy Spirit and the word that describe it both in the Hebrew Scriptures and in the Greek Scriptures are an onomatopoeia. You know this, that the word actually sounds and is pronounced like what it means, ruach, that you have to say it and air has to escape from your mouth, right? And this idea that the Holy Spirit is from the Old Testament understood as not just movement and energy, but the power presence of God himself, the empowerment of God in the lives of human beings. I was reading through the Bible, as is my pattern to do, and I came across an example in Numbers 11. When Moses asks, Lord, this, you know, caring for this group of people is too much for me to bear. And, and God says, I want you to bring leaders from every, from every tribe, and I want you to set them in front of me. And the Holy Spirit descended upon them. The Spirit of God, this Ruach, came upon them, and these elders started to prophesy and to speak in tongues. Numbers 11. And what we see in this is that the Holy Spirit is continuing his work. Even in the life of Apollos, even though Apollos hasn't been baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. But Luke is saying the Holy Spirit's operative in his life. Now what we see is that we see that Priscilla and Aquila, this husband and wife team whom Paul met before and who traveled with him to Ephesus, what we see is that when they realized that Apollos didn't know that Jesus had commanded to baptize people in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and didn't know that Pentecost had happened, the giving of the Holy Spirit, they taught him these things. It says in verse 26 that they taught him to speak more accurately. That they gave him those missing links in his experience. That they encouraged him. They vouched for him. And they sent him on to Achaia and back to Corinth, where Paul had just come from at the end of his last missionary journey. And Apollos was so successful and so helpful in Corinth that Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 3 and the chapters that follow that Apollos was a fellow worker of Paul's in Corinth. Actually, that Apollos was the one who watered the seed that Paul had planted. But Paul brings up the opportunity to remind him that the Holy Spirit is the one who causes the growth. I think there are a few takeaways for us in this section, and I want you to see this. As we see in this extraordinary case of Apollos, 
where the spread of the gospel outpaced the apostles' ministry coming out of Jerusalem and Judea into Samaria and to the ends of the earth, in this situation, that the Holy Spirit is not so tied to baptism as to be restricted by it. The Holy Spirit is at work. And this is good news for us. It's good news for us as we, play, as we pray for our communities. That it's not up to us to work and to, and to make every effort so that the Holy Spirit begins to work in our friends' lives just as they are baptized here at church. But the Holy Spirit goes before us into our communities. That the Holy Spirit is not so tied to baptism as to be restricted in his work by it. That is good news. It ought to relieve pressure for us. It ought to make us remember, yes, that's right. Salvation is by grace through faith. And even that faith is a gift from God. His work in our lives. Even before we profess that. That's interesting. We hear that in Ephesians chapter 2. is where the Apostle Paul talks about that. A couple of other takeaways. We ought to want that fervency and that zeal that is led by the Holy Spirit in Apollos' life. We ought to want to be Christians who are carbonated, if you'll take my illustration. We ought to want that for our own lives. And the beautiful thing is we ought to pray that way. When we don't experience that fervency, it is not ours to womp up it is not ours to force out of discipline, but it is ours to go before the Father and say, would you give us that fervency? Would you give us that zeal? Another thing to note is that we ought to notice the growth in one another. And we ought to encourage the growth that we see in one another. There is no one in this room who is done developing as a Christian. No one. Most importantly, not me. I am going to develop as a Christian as I minister as a pastor to you all. And we ought to notice the opportunity for encouragement here. Notice the opportunity for growth in one another. Notice the gentleness with which Priscilla and Aquila treated Apollos. They didn't wait till Apollos was in the sanctuary and, and from the seats go, that's wrong, Apollos, you don't understand. They didn't shame him, did they? No, they, set him, they pulled him aside and they explained more accurately the things of the Lord. And the amazing thing is how he went forth. They said that he went on to Corinth and was but a huge encouragement to the brothers and the sisters there. This is the first thing that we see about the Holy Spirit in the extraordinary case of Apollos. It's the longest of the three. I want to show you the next two. Because what I want you to see is though that's an extraordinary case of Apollos, there's a now a normative case of these disciples of Ephesus. So listen to this. And it happened, and it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, so Apollos left Ephesus and went back to Corinth, that Paul passed through the inland country he went from Antioch and he went up and over down into Ephesus and he came to Ephesus. 
There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John's baptism, or John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. I want us to see this normative example in the lives of the disciples of Ephesus, the normative work of the Holy Spirit. And I want us to notice that in baptism, which was commanded by Jesus, we see both a sign of the gift of the promised Holy Spirit, who is himself a seal authenticating God's presence and assuring us of what is to come. Paul meets these disciples. They're not disciples of John. You would expect that if they were disciples of John, they would have been noted that way. These were disciples who had already begun to believe in Jesus. They were either friends of Apollos's, maybe, who heard from the same person Apollos heard from, or maybe they heard from Apollos about who Jesus was in Ephesus. And they had put their faith and their trust in Jesus. And the Apostle Paul asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit? When you believed. And they said, we haven't even heard that there was a Holy Spirit. Again, we see the gap. Apollos left Ephesus and went to Corinth. And we don't know if he was baptized. But the Apostle Paul stops and he says, listen, John's baptism was a baptism about repentance. A baptism of repentance. John himself said, I baptize with water. It's a baptism that prepares people to believe in the one who will come after me the sandals of whose feet I'm not worthy to untie, who won't baptize you with water, but will baptize you with the Holy Spirit, is what John says. And Paul says the baptism of John was one in preparation, but the baptism of Jesus was one of empowerment. And here we see that sign commanded by Jesus, given to these disciples, and we see a demonstration of the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. They, are just, they, are, they, they turn and they profess to Paul, we believe. Then in turn, they're baptized. And as the Holy Spirit comes upon them, they prophesy and they speak in tongues. This has been very normative of the book of Acts. It's not normative in my life. I've never prophesied. I've never spoken in tongues. I don't even think to desire to speak in tongues. But what we see here is as the gospel goes into a new region, into Asia Minor, normative with the way that it went to the Gentiles and the Holy Spirit fell and there was prophecy and speaking of tongues, normative with the Holy Spirit falling in Numbers 11 when Moses prayed that God would raise up more leaders, normative in these cases in Acts already as the gospel expands we see people who prophesy and speak in tongues because that's how the gospel is communicated. It makes sense in that time. But we also see that it's a seal that gives confidence and a guarantee because the prophecy and the speaking of tongues is demonstrative of the Holy Spirit coming. 
And what's so interesting is that we see when Paul writes to the Ephesians, in chapter 1, verse 13, it says this, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Baptism, according to the normative actions of the Holy Spirit's work, is both a sign and the seal of the Spirit's work in our lives. Martin Luther used to argue with the devil. In fact, there are some folks who say that Martin Luther would throw the ink bottle across the room and tell the devil, you've got to leave me alone. I've been baptized. Again, I've never really argued with the devil that way. But baptism is a great source of encouragement for us. Those of us who pray for children, both ours and the children of others, ought to pray, Lord, you've baptized them. You've set your promises on them. Father, make yourself known. There are plenty of places in Acts where the Holy Spirit, where they're baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And they don't prophesy and speak in tongues. Lydia, the Philippian jailer, those are two that we've just looked at that come right to mind. But what we ought to take away from this story is the reality that the Holy Spirit is the gift to all believers, even if you don't sense it. And look, it's a big deal. It's a big deal when we sit here and go, you know, I don't sense that in my life. But we believe that the Holy Spirit is in our lives as Christians who profess faith because God has promised it, not because we sense it. Our sensations are going to change. They're going to ebb and they're going to flow. But the promise of God is that the Holy Spirit is with us. The Apostle Paul prays in the third chapter of Ephesians that the Ephesians would sense the Holy Spirit, that they would know, they would have a knowledge beyond understanding, that they would experience the Holy Spirit. He wants that for the Ephesians. We ought to want that for ourselves and for each other. But we believe in the gift of the Holy Spirit because God has promised it. And it's exactly what Luke was talking about in the dismissal of our kids, that when we pray for the Holy Spirit, it's one of the greatest promises of Scripture. Jesus said, when you pray for the Spirit, the Father will give you the Spirit. And we need to depend on that. We need to depend on that because of the last thing that I want to show you the necessity of the Holy Spirit in the advancement of the kingdom. I'm just going to read this, and we're briefly going to look at it. Verses 11 through 20, this last story. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had, been that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their, diseased, their the diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Siva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? 
And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. This last bit that we see of this study of the Holy Spirit speaks to the necessity of the Spirit's power in the advancement of the kingdom. We see it very first in verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. You would think that miracles are extraordinary enough. But Luke points out, no, these are extraordinary miracles. Handkerchiefs of Paul's and aprons that he used in his work that had touched his skin, people would grab them. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, they were healed or evil spirits were driven from them. That the Holy Spirit was the one who was acting. Verse 11 again, and God was doing extraordinary miracles. God was doing this. God was the one who was at work. Now, this work was tried to be borrowed by these seven sons of Siva. They saw that they were able to say of maybe the incantations that they had been famous for in Ephesus, the magic arts that they had practiced. Maybe if we say the same words that, that, that Paul is saying, we can control Jesus too. But they didn't know the Holy Spirit and they didn't believe in Jesus. And we see here that what they did was attempt to use superstition. In fact, Ephesus was known for magic, not dissimilar to Salem, Massachusetts in that regard. And they wanted to use the power of the Holy Spirit for their own purposes, almost like spells. This hits home for us sometimes in the way that we pray, doesn't it? Sometimes it hits home in the way that we say, God, we want you to do what we want you to do. But this type of effort was no match for the spirit who embodied this man. He said, look, I know who Jesus is and I've heard of Paul, but who are you? And then he attacks these seven sons and, and they flee from the house, right? That's the story. The Holy Spirit is necessary for the advancement of the kingdom. And it also brings to light why the apostle Paul wrote this. In, in Ephesians, Ephesians 6, 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The wrestling that we are a part of in the advancement of God's kingdom is absolutely dependent on the work of the Holy Spirit. Listen, when we are in our communities, we are not at war with our neighbors with flesh and blood. The battle that we as Christians are involved in is a battle that, as the Apostle Paul says to the Ephesians, is a battle against the rulers and against the authorities and against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. And because of that, 
The need for the Holy Spirit's power is demanded. We ought to be praying that the Holy Spirit empower us to love and to live for him in everything that we do. It is of absolute necessity. At the end of this story, you see how these people were struck with fear and they saw what was happening and they believed and they put their faith and trust in Christ. And this power of the Holy Spirit enabled them to turn away from their ungodliness. It enabled them to repent, to turn away from their magic, to burn their books at a very great cost to them. The power of the Holy Spirit was at work in their lives. And listen, you guys, for us to see the advancement of God's kingdom in our lives and in our community, it is absolutely necessary that we depend on the work of the Holy Spirit, that we pray for it and long for it. In fact, the Apostle Paul, in closing, prayed for the Ephesian Christians in chapter 1 of Ephesians, verse 18 and following, that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened, that they would know the hope to which they have been called, that they were God's rich inheritance, and that there was an immeasurable greatness of power at work in them, the power that even raised Jesus from the dead. What is your takeaway? Lastly, that the Holy Spirit power is necessary to live and to love as a Christian. Christian, do you pray that your life would be effervescent? Fervency of spirit bubbling over that those in our community might know the love of God, as we speak with boldness and love with sacrifice because the Holy Spirit is at work. Let's pray.